Good morning, Gator Nation. Welcome back to the In All Kinds of Weather forecast. Got a lot to talk about this week. Gators trying to get back on their feet against the Texas A&M Aggies after a loss to Georgia. A lot of stuff happening behind the scenes and off the field in the last couple of days, including the dismissal of Brent Cox, a reporter getting caught on a hot mic saying that I guarantee it, I will be here longer than Billy Napier. Just not a very pleasant day on Monday, to say the least. Hopefully the rest of the week goes more smoothly and the Gators are more just ready to go and locked in and laser focused for the game against Texas A&M, who has kind of owned Florida. Uh, they've only played two times in the last 10 years, but the Aggies won both those meetings, games that Florida had their chances in and, and they couldn't capitalize. So hopefully they can they can break that trend and finally do something positive against Jimbo Fisher's team. I am your host, Neil Shulman. You can follow me on Twitter at All Kinds Weather, on Instagram at All Kinds Weather Blog, and on Facebook and YouTube under the name In All Kinds of Weather. Dustin Smith, my co-host, is with me as well. You can follow him at IAKOW Dustin on Twitter. Chris Yanes, other co-host, also with us today. You can follow him on Twitter at Mr. Crispitz. And Mike Lucas is back with us to preview another round of Florida and Texas A&M. You may remember him from the 2020 Florida-Texas A&M preview. A uh, lot to talk about for sure. The Aggies are a team that have their own problems to deal with right now, as we just talked about the Gators list of issues. But we'll get to all that in a second. Before we do that, though, we've got to talk about our sponsors slash partners. We are proudly partnered with the Gator Good Foundation, a nonprofit organization that works to send underprivileged deserving Gator fans to the swamp. We collect donations from fans and use them to bring someone to his or her first ever Gator football game. If you believe you or someone you know is worthy of the honor for next year, please email us at GatorGoodFoundation.com. Never too early for us to start looking. And it's also not a bad time to help us out. Donations are very much appreciated. Don't ever expect it. But if you are able and willing to do so, please go to our website, GatorGoodFoundation.com and click on the donate button if you would like to help us. Second, we are proudly sponsored by Stingray Branding. These folks will put a sting into your marketing and deliver results that will wow your clients. Whether it's web design, logo design, branding, graphic design, social media management, search engine optimization, marketing strategy, or mobile app design, Stingray Branding has you covered. If you or someone you know needs professional help in any of the above, here are three great reasons why you should choose Stingray Branding. Number one, it is a veteran-owned business. Can't think of a much better way to properly thank those who serve our country than by giving the business. Number two, it is run by a UF alum and big-time Gator fan. And number three, they've got the personal stamp of approval from the In All Kinds of Weather brand because they did our new logo. They did our new website. And they've also done several other big-time Gator-related projects in the recent past, including the new Gator Collective website, the new Gator Collective logo, and the Gator Good Foundation website. So if you are a Gator fan listening to this podcast and you need help in any of the aforementioned areas, rest assured Stingray Branding will more than take care of you. And with that taken care of for our show today, Mike Lucas is back with us to preview another Florida-Texas A&M game. This is the third time the Gators are going to College Station in the last 11 years. Meanwhile, the University of Georgia has never in the history of ever been there, but that's a story for another day. Anyway, you may remember Mike from our 2020 A&M pod. He is 
a now former beat reporter for Texas A&M's local NBC affiliate, KAGS, which covered the Aggies in Bryan and College Station, Texas. He left that job right after Texas A&M's spring season to take a job in a much more lucrative market in Cleveland. But because he covered the Aggies for several years and is still very plugged into the program, He's the perfect guy to break down the Aggies for us and give us the intel on our next opponent. Also a very good friend of mine, fellow New Jersey guy, and we're thrilled to have him back. So, Mike, thanks again for taking the time. Welcome back. Uh, how's Cleveland treating you? Uh, I miss Texas heat, I'll tell you that. Uh, Cleveland is already cold and a lot darker than it ever got in Texas. And even as a Jersey kid who went to school in Boston, as soon as you get used to that Texas heat, you're, you become uh, – thin-blooded i would say and anything under 60 degrees now is winter to me and it's been winter for way too long i miss the heat but i'm enjoying cleveland it's a cool city uh new show i'm doing is a lot of fun and i'm excited to uh excited to see how the end of football season wraps up for the browns here with our show and get some Cavs action going so it's been a lot of fun yeah, so we do typically as you remember start off every interview we do with guests with a little segment called the lightning round but doesn't really apply to you as a guy who covered Texas A&M, never really was a Gator fan. So uh, two quick questions, and then we'll get into the crux of our episode. Number one, how did you get into the reporting game, the media game, um, and how do you like it? Uh, when I was in high school, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I, I really didn't have like that dream job. I wanted to be an NBA player and realized I was 5'9 and not that athletic, so that was not going to happen. But I like talking. I like sports and said, let's try and make a living out of it. And uh, ended up at Emerson College on a basketball scholarship. They had a good journalism program. And they've turned out some awesome journalists throughout the years and love my time there. And, you know, got a job in Tennessee. And now I've worked my way up the ladder from the middle of nowhere, Tennessee, to covering the SEC in College Station to now covering professional sports in, uh, in Cleveland. But it really started out of a passion for talking telling stories and sports. And this is kind of the crossroads of, if you like those things, the best place to do it. For sure. Yeah. Definitely some similarities there um, that I can, I can certainly relate to. Um, number two, what's your favorite Texas A&M and Florida Gators Jersey color combos that both schools wear? Ooh. All right. So at least for Florida, I love the blue and orange combo, the, the blue, jerseys the orange pants i don't even know if they wear those regularly i just play an ncaa football 14 i used to love being in florida because though i'm not even a knicks fan i just think blue and orange is the best jersey color combination humanly possible so i would go with the orange pants and the blue jersey uh for florida with the orange helmet they, they, they do wear those pretty frequently right i'm not i'm not crazy no they don't they, they don't they, they wore them in 2016 against north texas they wore them in 2000 or for the 2013 sugar bowl against louisville we don't talk about that game and they wore them for two losses to fsu in 89 and 99 and that's it all right so then maybe that's a bad luck jersey but i do think it looks phenomenal on tv uh a&m i'll be honest i i like a lot of things about a&m i think they have one of the weakest uniform games in all of college football it's basic jimbo fisher likes it to be basic he doesn't like the uh, the glitz and glam that comes along with jerseys and all all the swag. I think their classics are okay. I like the maroon top, the white pants, the, the generic. It's probably what they'll wear on Saturday against Florida. Um, I think it looks clean, but it's certainly not flashy. I will say the ugliest uniforms were the Gator scale ones they wore against AM a couple of years ago in the Swamp. 
And then the A&M replicated that in their own way with a, a black and striped red uniform later that year, which was also hideous. Adidas swung and missed on a couple of things back in the, uh, I guess, two, was that 2019, 2018, 17. whatever that was? 17, yeah. Swung and missed yeah. on a couple there. Ugly, ugly, ugly. So we have a lot of football questions to get into, but before uh, we get into all that, I know Chris has a lot of questions, especially uh, Dustin too, but I got to ask you about a tradition that I'm going to be uh, witnessing for the first and probably only time in my life. The midnight yell. I've, I've heard a lot about it. You see the clips and are now circulating on Twitter. I mean, I, I've always heard that it was just this rocking atmosphere the night before the game. And it, it does, it does kind of seem to be at times with tens of thousands of fans, you know, swaying arm and arm, like saw varsity horns off. So I, you know, that's, that's kind of electric, but there's a lot of cringiness that goes along with it with some of the, the yell leaders, I think they're called that are just telling jokes that aren't even clever for a 10 year old. So w- what's the deal with that? How did that start? And, and was it always this cringy? I don't know the entire history of it, to be honest with you. They, it just, it, it happened the, the history of the 12th man, uh, Back in like the 1930s or 40s or whatever, uh, AM only traveled with 12 players. Two guys got hurt and they brought a guy off the out of the stands to play to finish the game. And that was quote unquote the 12th man. So now AM fans are the 12th man because a fan actually came in to finish a game. That's where that comes from. As far as Midnight Yell goes, it's cool. Like I'm telling you, and you're going to love Kyle Field, uh, Neil. It's awesome. The end of third quarter to fourth quarter, Saul Varsity's horns off is, is, wonderful but you got to understand this with AM. it is a cult and they know they're weird and they embrace their weirdness and if you just take going into that knowing that hey we know we're weird we don't care this is just what we do because this is who we are you'll enjoy it. if you go in looking to be like this is cringy this is weird you will leave saying that was weird and cringy and the yell leaders weren't funny and they're not funny but it's what makes AM such a unique place in the college football landscape because they embrace the weirdness. They kind of like being funky and they, they've always been Texas's little brother. So they hold on to these traditions near and dear to their hearts because it's what they have that Texas doesn't. And it, Kyle Field's really cool, man. And it's an amazing, amazing game day atmosphere. I've traveled all around the SEC covering AM. Uh, you know, I've been to Georgia. I didn't get a chance to go to the swamp, LSU, Alabama, Auburn. And it's, it's right up there with anything. Death Valley at night, LSU is still the craziest environment I've heard. Uh, and the craziest scene I've witnessed in person at a uh, at an SEC game, but all in all, man, Kyle Field special. You're in for a treat this weekend. And go to Midnight Yell and just embrace it. Don't don't try to fight it because it is cringy. It is weird. They're not funny. But if you embrace it for what it is and kind of take it in as the unique tradition it is, I think you're going to love it. All right, I will make a note of that. It is because they're not funny. Like I'll tell you, you're not going to laugh. Like. The jokes aren't even meant to be funny. It's just how they tell those stories. And 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 I think kind of like that plays into like this whole thing that makes college football just so great. Like every school has such a unique tradition. Like uh, it's funny you mentioned or Neil mentioned the North Texas game. Like during that game, I actually got to lead probably UF's most unique cheer, which is the Mr. Two Bits cheer. Uh, I was a student Mr. Two Bits that season and, and the game they wore the blue on orange uh, color combo. So I just think like ultimately that's what just makes college football so great is, is the traditions and the uniqueness of it. And certainly Texas A&M is rich in that, which I think made them a great candidate to join the SEC when they actually did. Um, But kind of getting into a little bit more of some newfound things in Texas A&M, 
it's it's hard to not talk about last season and the recruiting game that Texas A&M was able to spit. They landed the number one recruiting class, and a lot of people attribute that to uh, name, image, and likeness. Every school is doing it now, and everybody's doing it in a little bit of a different way, it seems like. But what is Texas A&M's secret? Uh, or maybe you can let us in on kind of what you're hearing about the way they are doing NIL compared to some of the other schools in the country. Well, NIL right now is the wild, wild west. There, there's still no rules, so it's impossible to compare apples to apples um, when you're looking at how these deals are structured, what they can do. You know, I do believe A&M followed the quote-unquote NCAA sanctions that are out there. It's just the sanctions barely exist. What Texas A&M is legally allowed to do in Texas is different than what Florida is allowed to do in Florida. It's different than what Alabama is allowed to do in Alabama. And A&M has one of the largest and wealthiest donor populations of any school. But the one misconception with the number one recruiting class and everyone saying A&M bought this number one recruiting class, if you just take the kids that Jimbo Fisher recruited from Houston, if you just take the 12 kids from Houston that are in that 23 class, it's a top 10 class in the country. They always historically recruit unbelievably from Houston. Eight of those 12 kids or eight of the 13 kids were top 100 national recruits out of Houston. It's an hour and 20 minutes away. It's right up the road. A&M's two years removed from a, from a 9-1 finish in that COVID year. They're building something in the future with Jimbo Fisher. And or, or at the time, that's the selling point. And when you get all those kids from Houston together, you only needed one or two other guys to finish with a top five class. And then it turned out, as you guys know, in momentum with recruiting, you get one guy and they want to play with the other top players. And one domino falls. And the next thing you know, two or three dominoes fall. And then four or five dominoes fall. And A&M got pretty much every guy they wanted last cycle and flip it to this year. They've lost out on a couple of battles with the top guys they want. They, I think they only have 12 recruits at the moment and it's still a top 15 class. Nine of the 12 are, uh, you know, top 300 kids, four or five stars, but they've lost the receiver. Hakeem Williams signed with, uh, with Florida state. They've lost DBs and cornerbacks to LSU and Texas and, and Alabama. And there's some years you're going to win those battles and some years you're going to lose those battles. And I think, for AM to pull in that number one recruiting class last year, it was the perfect combination of A, Houston being absolutely loaded and that being their number one recruiting ground year after year. You got lucky on a couple of kids from out of state who wanted to come to AM who fell in love with Kyle Field, which, Neil, I can't wait to hear you next week. We'll have to talk after this. What you think of that atmosphere, especially during a game day. I know 11 o'clock is not the ideal start time, but you know it, it is what it is. Those kids falling in love. And just getting lucky, winning some battles. And this year, they're not winning those battles, but they're still going to finish with a top 10 recruiting class when it's all said and done. Jimbo Fisher has done a class lower than seven. So it's not like they went from 28 to one. They went from three, four, five, six to one. And it was the perfect combination of a few factors that uh, led to that class being as historically, statistically great as it was. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment of it. I mean, there's no doubt Jimbo Fisher has always had a recruiting prowess. Even when he was at Florida State, he had, uh, I believe, the number one recruiting class one of his years there, or if not the top three recruiting class pretty consistently. So he certainly has a knack for recruiting. Kind of going on the subject of Jimbo Fisher and sort of where the program is at now, I, I'm i not sure anybody anticipated, obviously, the three and five start, the four-game losing streak, uh, where the program is at right now. What do you what do you think the temperature is on Jimbo? Because obviously he's got an enormous buyout. I mean, we saw what Auburn's about to pay Brian Harson, but it is nowhere in the stratosphere for what Jimbo Fisher would be if they were to part ways with him this year and even next year. So, what's the temperature on him? And it, is the alumni base is the is the university the program starting to you know think about maybe the next move if if things continue to go south? 
so I'm not there. So I, I can't talk on the like alumni base. I can tell you this though, to buy Jimbo out, it's going to be $80 million at minimum. And then for anyone, they're going to want to hire, they're going to sign them to a six, seven, eight year contract for nine, $10 million a year to poach them from some other high school. And I can't fathom this school paying $150 million to make a coaching change. Cause it's not just buying out Jimbo, it's then hiring the next guy. And they already have hundreds of millions of dollars tied into an upgrade on the football facility. They're renovating the baseball facility. The baseball team just made the college world series this year and they're completely revamping Reed arena, which is where the two uh, basketball teams on campus play. So they have close to a billion dollars tied up already in athletic budget funds. So I don't know where in the world they'd find the money to get another 150 million to buy out Jimbo and hire somebody else. Uh, I don't, think that's even plausible at this moment but i will tell you from talking to people down there and following this team and just seeing the reaction i think ross bjork the athletic director and the uppers in that program or in the athletic department are going to make jimbo hire an offensive play caller a real offensive coordinator for the first time in his tenure at a&m and going back to his days at florida state the offense he runs is prehistoric in terms of today's college football. And when you're recruiting these high level five-star wide receivers and running backs and quarterbacks, they want to play in an offense that is prolific and can put up points and they can put up stats or they're, if not, they're going to go somewhere else. And I think that's what you're seeing a little bit in this recruiting class. They don't have a single offensive playmaker signed right now, no quarterbacks, no running backs, no receivers, no tight ends. All 12 of their recruits are linemen, linebackers or defensive backs. So I think they're going to have to change up things offensively. And that's going to take a lot of pride for Jimbo to swallow and say, hey, for the first time in my life, I'm not going to be the primary play caller. But I think that's going to be the direction they go in this offseason as opposed to firing Jimbo and looking for a new head coach. I don't think anybody's really thinking of him being on the hot seat as in he's going to be fired if X or Y or Z doesn't happen and go well and go in his favor. I don't think anyone's thinking that. Maybe the question is, what do you think the level of frustration is? down there because we know they're not happy we know three and five isn't really considered to be acceptable at texas a&m we know that jimbo's not happy with it we know that the fan base and the alumni and all these all these oil moguls that you sort of referenced earlier aren't thrilled with it so we're not necessarily talking about a change happening at the position but certainly the temperature has to be a lot hotter than it was a year ago no oh yeah absolutely people are are frustrated like that's i think the perfect word and i think patience is drawing thin with this offensive scheme that Jimbo's running because you see at times they'll look great. And then you go through nine, 10 game stretches, which they just snapped this previous weekend of not scoring 24 points or more against an FBS opponent. Think about that in college football today, they hadn't scored 24 points against an FBS opponent dating back to the middle of last year, nine games against FBS opponents under 24 points. They didn't have a, they didn't have a 300 yard passer since the last time they played Florida. Kellen Mond in that game against Florida in the COVID year was their last 300 yard passer. We're Big not interruption. Saying, Thank you, Todd Grantham. Go ahead. Yes. We're not. And, and that's, that was goes to how bad that Florida defense was that year. Cause Kellen Mond wasn't even that good, but think about that in college football today. I mean, you see dudes getting 300 yards on 14, 15 completions in today's day and day and age of college football. They went two years without a 300 yard passer and a true freshman who we'll talk about in a sec comes in in his first start and throws for 300-plus and four touchdowns, something that hadn't been done at A&M since 2017 against the Power 5 uh, opponent. So, yeah, the, the pressure is definitely getting ramped up. Like I said, asking Jimbo to hire a play caller and give up that duty himself is as close to towing the line of Jimbo 
legitimately being on the hot seat as humanly possible, because I think that's what he prides himself on is being an offensive mastermind and offensive genius. And I think the powers that be are going to kind of force his hand to take the offense out of his hands and give it to somebody else, someone maybe younger, more creative, who can scheme guys open a little better, who runs a more modern day offense and let Jimbo just be the overseer of the program. Let him lead the recruiting charge. Let him put other coaches in positions to succeed. Kind of like Ed O did in uh, LSU when he hired Joe Brady as the passing game coordinator. And you saw what happened for that year with Joe Burrow and all those weapons. So Jimbo's not going anywhere. The buyout's too big. The, the financial burden of firing him and hiring a new coach is way too large. But I do think having him give up play calling duties is way bigger of a, hey, you're on, you're on our watch, you're on notice, than it would be for a less established younger coach. Like that, that's a big deal to Jimbo Fisher. Mike, and just to kind of follow up on, on that you know, topic of just the players and the recruiting you mentioned earlier, do you feel like there's going to be – a lot of change within the personnel, like transfers. A lot of people have talked about that the, the transfer portal this year, just college football wide, is going to be pretty massive, something we've never seen before. Do you anticipate seeing that maybe at Texas a and in, in even those guys that came in that number one class to be a part of that? Yeah, I, I think that's just college football today. You, Jimbo's already talked about he's re-recruiting his recruits. And I think that's going to be the case with Florida, with Billy Napier. I think it's going to be the case with uh, Nick Saban in Alabama. You name any program in the country, you could sign guys, and then year after you're going to have some some attrition. That's the beauty and the downfall of recruiting four and five star kids at every position every year. Is guys want to play when they're you know freshmen and sophomores. If they don't get that chance, they'll they'll probably go to some place they can play. And if they're not happy with their playing time, you could just leave now. So yeah, I'd be shocked if AM kept oh, they have 26 kids in this most recent recruiting class. Straight guess, no inside knowledge. Six to eight probably transfer out. And I think that's probably going to be a pretty consistent number moving forward, not just with AM, but with other high-level recruiting classes and programs throughout the country. You'll probably see 33%, 25 to 33% of your recruiting class transfer out every year just for another opportunity because they have no reason to stick around anymore. If there's a better opportunity, they could leave play immediately without penalty. Why wouldn't you take that opportunity after seeing exactly what you're getting yourself into for a year? And that's not a knock on Jimbo. I just think that's the reality of the situation now with the uh, free one-time transfer rule and NIL deals. I mean, college football is like free agency now. And I think if you look at it any way else, you're doing yourself a disservice and you're not, embracing the reality of the sport which sucks because i wish it wasn't like that it just kind of has turned into that yeah that's uh as you mentioned something that florida is going to have to be dealing with we already just kicked off brenton cox i'm sure that there's going to be more i don't want to say exactly um the i don't want to pick the verbiage of how exactly it's going to go down but i think it's fairly safe to say that there are a lot of players on this year's team that will not be there next year and not because their eligibility is up. I think we're going to see yeah. that happen. What now you want to call it, kick them off. You want to say, nudge them out the door. You want to say they just decided to transfer, whatever. I don't care. The bottom line is Florida is going to have a lot of, a lot of new faces uh, come next year. So speaking of Texas A&M has a lot of faces that are new to our Gator listeners, at least relative to the last time that we played them. I mean, because because on that 2020 podcast with you, we were talking about the strengths and weaknesses of Kellen Mond, uh, DeMarvin Leal, um, uh, Anaya Smith, uh, Spiller. We were talking about all these guys. A lot of them aren't there anymore. 
And a lot of other guys that had huge parts and a great season are gone. So it's a very different program. So, I mean, we, we kind of touched on it, but give us, give us the cliff nose version basically of, of what the hell happened. How did things come so wildly off the rails since then? I want to say it's off the rails. I think that 2020 team was senior and junior loaded. And a lot of those guys just happen to graduate and go to the NFL. Mon's in the NFL. DeMarvin Leal's in the NFL. Bobby Brown, uh, Buddy Johnson, Kenyon Green. The entire offensive line that season was was four seniors and a freshman. And Kenyon Green was a first-round pick last year, two years later as a junior. So it, the turnaround or the roster turnaround is is drastic, but I just think that's what happens when you have a senior-laden team. And now – the Aggies are playing so many true freshmen and underclassmen based on the way they've recruited the last two years. So when you look at the Aggie team this year offensively, heading into the year, it was Anaya Smith, who I think is the only guy who played in that 2020 game who made an impact that would have been back, but he was injured against Arkansas in week four and has not returned since he broke his leg. With him out, it's the Devon A-Chain show. They're running back. Absolutely electric speed. One of the best backs, not just in the SEC, but in the entire country. He can turn a little run into a home run in the blink of an eye. He's literally one of AM's best track athletes, too. He was an All-American last year as a true as a, a true sophomore in the 200 and the 100. So he has electric speed. Evan Stewart was uh, a five-star recruit wide receiver. He's been lived up to the billing, and then some he came on the last two, three weeks uh, and really showed why the recruiting services were so high on him. He made a couple of unbelievable catches against Alabama in that loss. They had the bye week. They came back. They lose to Ole Miss, but Stewart showed out again. Donovan Green at tight end has been really good for them lately, but the, the biggest name to know on offense is the quarterback, Connor Wigman, who was a, a five-star, consensus five-star, number one or two quarterback in the country, depending on how you looked at. Made his first career start last week, threw for 300-plus yards and four touchdowns. Like we said, it's only been done twice since they've joined the SEC. Once was Johnny Manziel in a bowl game. Once was Nick Starkle back in 2017. And he... He has the look of being special. It's one game. I'm not going to crown him or anything, but compared to the quarterback play AM's had the last six, seven years since Johnny left, watching him do some of the things he does with relative ease reminds you of the special guys. The guys like an Anthony Richardson who does stuff and you go, did he really just do that without thinking twice? It was natural to him. That's the kind of star-like potential Wigman has. And I know it's one start. I'm not going to overreact to anything, but uh, I think AM has finally found its quarterback of the future, which they haven't had since Johnny Manziel graduated in 2014. So we know there's been a lot of turmoil over the last few weeks and in this season. So I just, I just want to ask you, what do you feel has been the biggest contribution to why A&M's been the way they've been? Uh, it's a good question from the bird's eye view of being in Cleveland. I think there's a couple of things that attribute to it. A, they had to replace their defensive coordinator. Mike Elko went to Duke. They hired DJ Durkin from Ole Miss. And despite having elite talent, they're all playing. They're, they're, they're all freshmen and sophomores on the defensive line. They don't have a true pass rusher. They have a bunch of guys who are hybrid defensive tackles that are too small to be tackles, too big to be natural. ends. so they have no speed on the edges. Uh, and they've played a three-man front, which has driven Aggie fans crazy. I don't understand why he continues to play a three-man front, but the defensive coordinator swap has certainly had their defense take a step back. We thought it could be elite heading into the season. It has been anything but. They just gave up 400 yards on the ground to Ole Miss. Offensively, not to make excuses, but 
you know, three of their five opening day offensive linemen suffered season ending injuries already. They're down to playing once again, freshmen granted four and five star freshmen on the offensive line. And they have a brand new offensive line coach in Steve Adazio. So it's a new coach meshing new talent in and, and, and they've been hurt, which once again, every team deals with injuries. That's not an excuse, but it's a lot easier to win games when you have your, your best five linemen out there on their third quarterback of the year. And maybe he should have started sooner. You can make that argument, but Haynes King came in. I was never a big fan of Haynes King. He got hurt in week two or got benched after week two. Max Johnson comes in. He looks a little better, but the offense is still stagnant. Anaya Smith gets hurt, their best playmaker on the outside. So they've just been rotating in an entire cast of new characters. And I think the biggest disappointment of the year is the over, uh, overinflated preseason expectations. Like this team never should have been ranked six heading into the year with how much they lost from last year's team. That was a misjudgment on the AP, a misjudgment on the voters, thinking that you can replace talented veteran players in the trenches on both sides of the ball with 18-year-olds in the SEC, and you wouldn't drop a beat, even if the guys coming in are technically more talented and higher rated than the guys who you're replacing. So when you combine all that with some unfortunate luck and questionable coaching, offensive schemes and everything hasn't been great. You look at a disappointing year where you're sitting at three and five, losing four in a row on the precipice of losing a fifth this weekend if, uh, if Florida can do what they do best. Yeah, well, let me follow up with you on that. And you mentioned all of the, the talented guys that have come in. Well, in the past few weeks, and, and you've talked to us about it, but we, we had a few players on Texas A&M that made decisions that kind of took them away from the program. Um, talk to us about that and, and how, how you think that's going to impact the game on Saturday. You mean the, the four freshmen who were suspended? They were talking exactly, about? exactly. Yeah, I mean, three of them were playing pretty consistent minutes um, and getting a ton of time on the field. Harris was one of their first guys at DB to come off the bench. Chris Marshall, the receiver, was was one of their starters. Uh, PJ Williams had him played, and then uh, who was the fourth? I'm drawing a blank on who the fourth was. Um, well, it doesn't matter. Mar- Marshall and uh, Chris Marshall and Denver Harris were the two big ones, and I'm I'm drawing a blank on the fourth, so that, that's on me. PJ Williams didn't play, but thinking LJ Johnson. LJ Johnson hasn't practiced with the team, but I don't think he was suspended in the same way he was uh, the other three were. And he's not a freshman. He wasn't one of the four freshmen. But it, besides the point, you lose one of your better receivers. You lose a valuable guy in the secondary rotation who had been playing well. I wasn't there. I, I know what I've heard. The reports are they were smoking weed in the locker room um, after the loss to South Carolina, which is just a terrible look. And you know what? I kind of respect Jimbo for doing it, for suspending them, for sticking the flag in the ground and making a point to make an example of these guys because two things, two reasons. A, the season's falling apart in front of you. You can say, hey, I need these guys to win and screw my principles, screw my program. I need the most talent on the field. Let's let's you know turn a blind eye to this and say, hey, they're going to help us win. We got to let these kids do what they want. They're 18 and stupid. And that may be true. But Jimbo didn't do that. He he punished them appropriately. We'll see what the extent of this suspension is when it comes out. We'll see if they they may decide to transfer because of this. But I think it sends an example to the rest of the team that, hey, even in times that aren't going as well as we had hoped when we hadn't planned for this, when everything seems to be crumbling in front of us, I'm not going to bend my morals or bend the standard of my program to allow a couple of, we'll call them knuckleheads, 
to be a distraction. So I commend Jimbo on the suspension. They'll find ways to win or lose without them. They've recruited well enough that the backups of the four and five stars are now four and five stars too, but they're 18 year old kids. I I don't want to crucify them for being idiots. Like we were all dumb when we were 18. So uh, it certainly hurts Dustin, but I don't think it's a crushing blow. None of them, none of the four were absolutely crucial to their success on the field this year. Yeah, Mike. And kind of, uh, I mean, that's something Billy Napier is dealing with right now, right? I mean, he, like Neil had mentioned, we've kicked Britton Cox off the team, and he believes he's one of the best defensive players, if not the best one on the team. So I think that's certainly something the Florida program is starting to go through, and we probably will have more of an exodus. But I think the uh, it does kind of sound like, though, you're hinting at, you know, there's a lot of young players on this team, freshmen and sophomores, I, I agree. I think that the administration is going to force Jimbo's hand and make him hire an OC and make him call plays after this season. Do you then expect a major jump for this team? You know, like when they become more veteran late in next year, when they're more sophomores, seniors, and seniors to make that jump where they can win nine, 10, 11 games. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll be honest. If you go back to anything I've tweeted or said, I, I always thought this year, and is that you can't throw away years in college football because you just never know who's going to go to the draft, who's going where, transfer injuries, all that. I always thought next year was the year because then you'd have all these five stars, this amazing recruiting class you come in, be sophomores, and you see players come in as freshmen. Some of them can step in and play right away, but for the most part, most guys need a year in a college weight room, a year in the playbook, a year to learn a system offensively or defensively to really thrive into the player they can become. So you get all these five-star freshmen in, Second year in the system, you get Connor Wigman at quarterback, who I saw play in high school. He was the best quarterback I've ever seen live in high school. You saw him at the spring game. The talent, the raw ability is there. It was just a matter of how well, how quickly could he learn Jimbo's system and how well could he protect the ball. He's now a sophomore. He's the undisputed starter heading into the season. I was never bullish on Haynes King or Max Johnson. I thought they would both be solid, but neither was a national championship caliber quarterback unless you're like Georgia and you could have Stetson Bennett, who's good enough, but you know, the rest of the team obviously is the the bread and butter of Georgia. So I always thought next year was the year anyway. Um, it'll be interesting now to see with a new offensive coordinator, if they go that route, what they can do with this talent, because you're coming into the best situation possible. It'd be like if Neil had a restaurant and he didn't have a chef, but he had Wagyu beef and the, you know, the truffles and the morel mushrooms that he picked himself. He had all the ingredients for the most delicious dinner in the world. He just didn't know how to cook. So he calls you and Chris and says, Chris, you're an elite cook. Make me a great dinner and we'll eat together. That's what this new offensive coordinator is going to come into A&M with. He has all the ingredients. He just has to find a way to work within Jimbo and come to some uh, middle ground with Jimbo on how they want to run this offense. But the talent is there. And I do believe, yeah, they're, they're a year or two away, especially next year with, the 2021 class being juniors, the 2022 class being sophomores in a position to compete because it's not talent anymore. They have the talent on the roster. It's about developing that talent and really finding an offensive system that can maximize the talent they have on that side of the ball. Because frankly, right now, and you guys will watch it on Saturday, there are a lot of drives that you just leave scratching your head saying, what in the world was that from A&M? And I just think that's the way Jimbo is uh, accustomed to calling plays. And I just think it's frankly a little outdated at this point. It can still work. I'm not saying it can't work, but it is certainly a lot harder for AM to score points than it is when you watch 20 other games on a Saturday afternoon. You go, 
why are those guys so open? Why does it look so easy? And then why does it look so hard for AM to score 24 points? So um, for lack of a better way to put this, Florida does not have a very good defense. That's just being very <laughs> – that's, that, that's the polite way to put it. Uh, they don't tackle. They don't set the edge. They don't contain. They miss assignments. Sometimes it's the little things like turning the wrong way, attacking the wrong hip when they're trying to tackle. Uh, they don't use the sideline as an extra defender when they have the option to do, to do that. There's just a lot of fundamental and schematic things that they don't do right. So, they, yeah, I mean, and the results have shown that. And now they've kicked Brenton Cox off the team, which I kind of think is addition by subtraction anyway. But that does just mean even more youth for Florida's defense. I also, though, know that the Aggies offense hasn't been great all year. You've mentioned the play calling issues. Um, you know, they mentioned the quarterback struggles. So give us some hope here as Gator fans. Uh how how do you think that that this defense of Florida's will fare against an offense with a true freshman QB and a, what you call a prehistoric method of calling plays? Yeah, I mean, here, here's the good news for Florida. They've scored more than 24 points against an FBS team once in the last 11 games. Once. It happened to be last week, but it's still once. They have not been able to move the ball for large stretches of the game against pretty much every SEC team they've played the last year and a half. And we saw Wigman come in last week and, and throw for 360 yards and four touchdowns, but now there's tape on him. So hopefully, from a Florida perspective, your defensive coordinator and defensive staff can look at that tape now that they know what Jimbo likes to call with Wigman, what he's more comfortable with, what he's not more comfortable with, and design a game plan to slow down what he does best offensively. It's like a new pitcher in baseball. You know, when there's no tape on him, it's a lot harder to hit. You don't know the movement on his pitches. You haven't seen him yet. His fastball may sneak up on you, even though it says only 93 on the, the radar. It may come in more like 95. Weird windup. But now there's a little tape on Wigman. So I expect a little bit of a regression at a minimum uh, from him on Saturday against Florida. And the other thing is if you can get pressure, this offensive line has not been great. And that that will wreck any offensive game plan, whether it's from Joe Brady, from Jimbo Fisher, from any offensive play caller in the country. If you can get pressure, especially up the middle, you can wreck what AM wants to do. And the interior of their offensive line has certainly not been good. They're starting Cam Dewberry at left guard. He's a true freshman, started, I think, two games in his life. Matthew Wyckoff is the starting center, has started two, three games in his life. He's a sophomore. And at left tackle, Trey Zoon has been banged up. He's a redshirt freshman, first-year starter, and he's been in and out of the lineup. So if you're going to attack, attack the left side of that Aggie offensive line. Uh, it's certainly weaker than the right side where they have their two best linemen, but you can get pressure on Wigman in this running game. And if you can uh, do that, you can slow down any team in the country. Yeah, well, Florida doesn't really have much of a pass rush. Eight games and 13 sacks. And two of those games were against Eastern Washington and South Florida. So Might be a standstill then, Neil. <laughs> That's why I'm, that's why I'm begging you. Give us hope, man. Give us something we can uh, we can latch our hopes onto. But yeah, no pass rush. I will say that freshman Chris McClellan has been stepping up recently, and he is someone that I think will be a big part of the team moving forward. Maybe he can do something. But uh, yeah, virtually zero pass rush for most of the year. Um, yeah, it, it's 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 a simple way to or an easy way to simplify things. Get pressure, but. Just go know this. The Aggie offense has not been good this year. Appalachian State held them to 14 points, I think it was. They were unable to do anything offensively against Mississippi State. Arkansas, till the very end, completely shut them down. Like Their offense has been pedestrian at best. At best. 
in 75% of their games this year. That's what Florida fans can hang their hat on going into this, that even though last week may have been their best performance, it has certainly been an anomaly of the offense we've seen from A&M the last season and a half. So, Mike, a little bit of switching gears here. I wanted to ask kind of about the crowd. You mentioned earlier at the top of the show, 11 a.m. start, it's not ideal, but you you do think the crowd still will be in this game? Or what do you think the atmosphere is going to be like on Saturday? Because that certainly could play a factor in the result. Certainly, you know, Florida's ability to move the ball down the field on the offensive side. Yeah, no, the, the 12th man will show up. They'll be loud. Last week was their first home game in 40-something days. Uh, they hadn't played a home game until last week in SEC action. They played Arkansas at a neutral site, at Alabama, at Mississippi State, at South Carolina, had a bye week in there. So the crowd last week was electric, obviously not the result they wanted, but anytime there's a home game at, at Kyle Field, it is electric. And, uh, you know, a sellout at Kyle Field is 107,000. I don't think they'll have 107 there, but they'll have six figures in the crowd, Neil. Um, and and it's, it's a loud crowd. They're not super... They're not super rowdy. Like they're not a rude crowd. They don't boo. They'll they'll shh you. It's the dumbest tradition of all the A and M traditions, Neil. The dumbest one is where they instead of booing players, they're like shh because Aggies don't boo because they're they're good people. Um, and I do air quotes. What they, they are good people, but it's a dumb tradition. Just boo a player or boo a coach or whatever. But remember the last time Florida was there and Dan Mullen was like, "Hey, it's only supposed to be twenty five percent capacity," and he said it was seventy five percent and. There's a bunch of false starts that push them out of field goal range on one. That was with 30,000 people in Kyle Field. So multiply that by three and some change, and it's definitely going to be loud for Florida. And I can't wait. Neil, I cannot wait to talk to you next week, by the way, about what you think of Kyle Field because it's a cathedral, and it, it really is one of the best game day atmospheres in college football. I really want to go to the Swamp, too. That's on my bucket list of places to, uh, to get to, but Kyle Field is a special, special place. And they got rid of the intro song, by the way, Neil. I'm not sure if you know that. I'm curious. Yeah, Kanye. Uh, yeah, uh, Kanye. They, don't, they won't play it anymore. So I'm curious what that, that aspect will be like because um, the entrance was electric, but I, I agree with the decision of completely distancing yourself from Kanye that you know will save all commentary on him for a different platform. But, uh, yeah. but it's a really cool atmosphere, and I do think the crowd will play a factor in it by the second half especially. The first half – it might be a little late getting in there. I would buy, I'd say by 11.45, second quarter, second half, place will be absolutely bumping. I have to ask you about the Aggie D. So who are the playmakers on Texas A&M's defense and who should Florida be looking out for in that department? The safeties are their best players. They're just both a little dinged up right now. Antonio Johnson will most likely be a first-round pick in the NFL draft. He's their nickel hybrid safety cornerback who's phenomenal but he missed the last two games with a hamstring injury I, I think he's questionable for this game I'm not exactly sure what his final status is but 27 Antonio Johnson is certainly a name to keep an eye on Damani Richardson their true safety uh their true senior safety he actually played in that 2020 game against Florida too he's their leader on the defense uh he's played well this season Edrin Cooper 45 the linebackers electric he's fast he gets to you know, ball carriers sideline to sideline, but he's been banged up. And on the defensive line, Fadil Diggs, number 10, uh, has forced, I think, four fumbles this season. He's their leading sack artist, but all the guys they're playing on the defensive line right now are freshmen. And it's changed game to game who's played well, who has it, who's been consistent, who hasn't. Uh, so you got 35 McKinley Jackson is your bowling ball in the middle, and they rotate guys in and out nonstop. Uh, so those are kind of the guys to keep an eye on, but 
they're so banged up on defense right now that I, I can make a guess on the 11 that'll play Saturday, but there's no guarantee that even remotely resembles the actual 11 that rolls out when kickoff comes. I have noticed that you know there, there was the one bad game against Mississippi State. They gave up 42 in that one. But I mean, aside from that, and yeah, they gave up 31 to Ole Miss, which I guess is you know, an, 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 eh, an average mediocre performance. Aside from that, the defense has been good. Defense has yeah. not given up a lot of points this year. So seems kind of like um, a matchup of strength on strength, Florida's offense versus A&M's defense. I don't know that their defense is really elite, but it's definitely the better of the two units, or at least it seems to be. And Florida's offense is clearly the better of its two units. Whereas, well, Florida's defense isn't very good. And Texas A&M's offense is, uh, you know, unimaginative, as you said, and really relies on one guy. So um, before we get into our official wrap-up segment, the verdict, uh, I'm going to give you a sentence with a blank, and I'd like you to fill in that blank. So two real quick ones. Number one, Florida is in serious trouble on Saturday if blank happens. Devin, uh, if A-Chain goes crazy. Okay. Well, Florida doesn't tackle. They are not particularly fast on defense. They most recently have been seen getting thrown around like rag dolls by a third string running back from Georgia. Um, Branson Hall, just absolutely embarrassing Rashad Torrance in that game. Uh, they don't set the edge. Well, they don't know how to line up properly still. So yeah, there is a very, very strong possibility of exactly that happening. Number two, the, basically just the inverse of that Florida is in great shape to win on Saturday. If blank happens and turns the ball over Florida has been kind of iffy in that department. They did take the ball away from Georgia three times. They have had games where they don't take the ball away at all. So I don't know. I guess we'll have to see um, how, how is a and fair to the turnover battle so far this year? Uh, not great. Not great. They forced a bunch early. So the plus minus ratio is, is good. They forced four against Alabama uh, against their backup quarterback. So that was a, I don't want to say a bit misleading, but it also wasn't Bryce Young. But they've killed themselves with dumb turnovers. They had one against Appalachian State late, which, you know, took them out of position to kick the game winning field goal. They've turned it over in the red zone against Mississippi State. They, they just haven't been good. They haven't been good, frankly. So it is an, a defensive opportunity for Florida. If they can capitalize, they will have a couple of chances to uh, to create some turnovers. All right. So it sounds like this is an opportunity for Florida just in general to take a step forward with the defense. Going to be a lot of new guys out there. I shouldn't say a lot of new guys, but there will be a few new guys out there. There will be a lot of guys jockeying for a position for next season. I don't want to call this like a bowl game because it is still an SEC opponent. There's still four more games to go, plus hopefully a bowl game at the end of the year. But it does feel somewhat like that in the sense that it is an audition for next season because, as we know, Billy Napier is bringing in a ton of new talent next year. We assume he's going to take some guys in the transfer portal as well. So for the guys that are there and who will be back next year, meaning who are not seniors, it does feel like an opportunity for them to – put on some good tape and help themselves out in terms of uh, auditioning for a role. So, all right, the verdict, you remember this from uh, the pod we did with you two years ago, I we do. added a segment to it this year where we just go, what percent chance do you give Florida to win the game? So as we have done before um, the keys to the game, 
the percent chance to win and the final score prediction. So your key to the game for each team is what? For A&M, it's stopping the run. For Florida, it is forcing Connor Wigman to look like a freshman. Make him look like it's his second career start. Make him look like South Carolina was more of an anomaly than what to expect. Make him remember he's 18 years old. Okay. I like those, uh, Mike. I I would say my keys to the game for Florida is to win the turnover margin. I know last week we talked a lot about how winning the turnover margin would keep Florida in the game versus Georgia. It did for a quarter. I would say if we had a similar turnover margin like we did against Georgia, that would lead to – I think that would almost guarantee a victory. That's a padlock stack for me if we, in fact, do win the turnover margin. I'd say the key for Texas A&M is if they get a fast start in the game, Florida has mightily struggled with fast starts this season. The lone exception was LSU, and we lost that game because the defense just couldn't get off the field on third down. So I think if Texas A&M gets a fast start at home and gets the crowd behind them, like Mike, you're talking about, I I just can't see Florida battling back. or, or winning the game. I mean, they might battle back. That's been kind of a trademark of a Billy Napier team is to battle back, but it's going to be very difficult if they, if they have a slow start and Anna has a fast one. I'm going to go ahead and say this. Florida has to be able to run the ball. Texas A&M has been notoriously ineffective at times in stopping the run. It's vital that Florida gets going running the ball and not only doing so, but also connecting on the deep play action. That's going to be absolutely critical. If Florida is able to run the ball for more than 250 yards, then I think Florida wins the game. On the defensive side, Florida has to stop big plays. Okay, you you talk about Evan Stewart. You talk about these big-time, talented players that are on A&M. If Florida is going to have any chance in this game, they have to stop big plays. And I also want to second what Chris said in terms of the turnover battle. Florida is actually better than Texas A&M right now in the turnover ratio. So if that continues and Florida Mm -hmm. is better in this particular game with the turnover ratio, I think Florida has a good chance at at winning the game. In terms of my padlock stat, I'm going to leave it at that with the 250 yards rushing. If Florida does that, I think they have a great chance to win the game. So my keys are going to be kind of piggybacking on what the other three of you have said. Florida has to not have, or Florida has to not allow big plays because from what I have seen on tape and from what Mike is telling me, the more plays you force them to run, the more opportunities they have to make mistakes, the more opportunities that their freshman quarterback has to look like a freshman to do something stupid and give Florida a good field position. So if you force AM to go the long way up, up and down the field, they're not a sure thing to just punish our front seven the way that Georgia did. They're not going to be as certain to say, okay, well, you're not going to give us anything deep. All right, we'll just go 15 plays, 75 yards. We don't care how you, you know, how, we don't care what you give us. We're going to score one way or another. AM's best way to score seems to be through the big play with Mr. A chain, as, uh, as Mike was talking about, they don't seem to be a team that if you force them to go the slow boat to China up the field, that they're going to be successful. So stop that from happening. Um, and on defense or on offense, 
Richardson has to play well. I mean, he he's been very Jekyll and Hyde this year. With um, you know, d- does he play well? Does he not play well? He's he's had some horrid games against South Florida and Kentucky, and I just I I would call them just garden variety bad games against Missouri and Georgia. But he's had some great games too against LSU. He he's a reason Florida was in that game after falling behind by three scores, um, and and he was great against Utah and Tennessee. So. If we get great Anthony Richardson, I think Florida's chances to to win the game, which we'll talk about next, go up significantly. So speaking of percent chance to win the game, um, Mike, we sort of mock the the FPI, the football power index that ESPN does. We use different factors for this. They, I mean, there just seems to be solely computerized. We'll use more factors like, you know, the time of the kickoff, Florida, maybe having played different level of competition than Texas A&M has played so far as A&M's played. Um, well, I don't know. Florida actually has played good teams and really good teams in Tennessee and Georgia. The East is better than <laughs> it usually is. But um, anyway, yeah. So with, with our own variables inserted into it, what percent chance would you give Florida to win this game? 48. I think it's close, man. Uh, I'm not sold on A&M. I'm not sold on Florida. I think being at home for A&M definitely gives a couple – uh, extra points in their direction. I think they're desperate for a win to snap that four-game losing streak. Uh, but I think this is really a coin flip game. I could see it going either way. Mike, I'm gonna I'm gonna echo that. I I'm gonna put it at 50-50. And it's not that like because I going into the season, I think I had this as like a 32% chance Florida was gonna win this game. But the reason I'm gonna raise it to 50 is because one AM definitely has been pretty bad. They're three and five. Florida hasn't been much better. I just think that these teams both desperately need a win Florida for the sake of making a bowl game for showing progress in the first year of Billy Napier. And then AM obviously to snap a losing streak and to break some of the negative press they've gotten over the last month. So I honestly think it's just a 50, 50 game and it's about maybe who shows up and wants it more on Saturday. Like I, I think sometimes when you have two teams that are, you know, struggling, it's just about, who makes the plays at the right moments of the game. And sometimes you got to throw talent and skill out and just who executes. So for that, that's why I'm putting it at 50, 50. So keep in mind this in my mind. And I, and I like to power rank teams. Um, in fact, something I want to do down the line is create some sort of power ranking, but I'll, I'll leave it at that. Anyway, I would actually rank Texas A&M and South Carolina about even. And as we'll get to in uh in a few weeks, I think Florida's going to beat the crap out of South Carolina. But anyway, for this particular game, I think the big difference is going to be Kyle Field. And for that reason, I think a and um, I think A&M has a good chance to win the game, and that's why I'm giving Florida a 42% chance to take it. All right, so I'll be, I guess, ever so slightly the most negative um, of the four of us. And I'll say Florida has a 40% chance, and it's simply because I've – I've just watched this defense do every conceivable thing that they possibly could do wrong, wrong. And it hasn't mattered the level of opponent. Remember Eastern Washington on their first two drives of the game, bowled Florida over South Florida did whatever they wanted to do against this Florida defense. So yeah, I, I understand AM's offense has a lot of problems, but Florida's defense has the kind of problems that are conducive to struggling offenses just magically fixing their problems against them, like not tackling, like busting assignments, like turning the wrong way, attacking the wrong hip, just everything you could possibly do wrong, they do wrong. So I'll give AM the slight edge over Florida because of that. 60-40, 
if it, if this was on a neutral field, I'd probably still favor AM 55 45. But as you said, the the home field does give AM a bit of an advantage, even with 11 a.m. kickoff. So um 60 40, not a sure thing. Florida's gonna lose. It's not one of those situations, like I said, for LSU. Uh, Mike, and I quote, I have never been so certain that Florida will lose a close game. And <laughs> I, you know, I, I was right. I wish I wasn't. I wish that was one of the times I got uh, ratioed into oblivion by Florida fans. But on that particular one, I was right. So uh, score predictions. What do we got, guys? I'm going to go 24-23 A&M. Florida scores late, goes for two, and gets stopped on a two-point conversion. Wow. Okay. Noted. Chris, what have you got? I could totally see Billy Napier doing that, too. Like, Billy Napier loves to go for two, loves to be risky. So that scenario would not in the least bit surprise me. I have a feeling I'm going to be the only one to do this. I'm going to do it anyway. It's a 50-50 game. I think, I think Billy Napier and company respond and need a big win here, and I think they get it. Really close. I'm going to go Florida 28, Texas A&M 24. So I know I did say that Florida has a 42% chance to win. What that means is in a 1,000 scenarios, Florida would win about 420 times. Um, in 100 scenarios, they win 42 times. Um, well, I think this is going to be one of those 42 times. I think Florida does pull out the victory against the odds as I would attribute it. And I'm going to, I'm going to give Florida the win by the score of 30 to 27. So yes, A&M does score 27 points. So that's more than 24 points um, on an FBS opponent, but I don't think it's enough because I think Anthony Richardson will score the game winning touchdown and it'll be a long run with less than a minute left to win the game. I think it, I think we're going to do it. All right. Well, like I said, this, this Florida defense just has a way of making other teams feel good about themselves on offense that, that applied to South Florida that applied to Eastern Washington, Missouri, Missouri got 370 yards on this defense. So I'm going to say A&M takes out a lot of frustration and has the offensive game of the year. I'll say they get 40 on Florida. Well, because, Ooh. yep, because now Florida's down one of its seniors. I wouldn't necessarily call him a leader, but that does mean more youth. That does mean more freshmen stepping onto the field and in, in larger percentages of times. Um, I think Florida's offense comes to play. I think it's a it's a shootout. I think Devin Achan goes wild, as you said, was what was going to be needed to happen if AM was going to win. And I'll say AM pulls it out 42 to 38. I, I simply I just don't trust the defense. I just don't trust it. That's a 2020 repeat almost. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Man, you're, to- you're totally taking the over on this game. Oh yes. Oh totally. Yeah. Oh this defense it's, is so you're... bad. It's so bad. <laughs> they they can't stop Eastern Washington. They can't stop South Florida. Both of those teams got over 400 yards of total offense. And yes, I I, I know, I understand a lot of that yardage from Eastern Washington came when the game was already a joke and the score was already lopsided and Florida's backups were in. I, I do understand that, but they ran right over Florida on each of their first two drives of the game. They got into the red zone on each of those first two drives. 
And that's an FCS team. South Florida is a team made up of mostly two and three stars and transfers. A&M oh, has man. four and five stars. I mean, I understand. Like, I, I do that that Jimbo runs a dinosaur offense. I get it. But this unit just has a way of making other offenses feel good about themselves. I mean, Georgia's offense is no juggernaut. It's, it's a solid offense. It's not LSU 2019. They put up 555 yards on us. I don't know. I just uh. – if, if they put up 40 points, Kyle Field will be as loud as any place you've heard. So be ready. All right. Um, I'm looking forward to it, man. I'm looking forward to the experience. Uh, I'm looking forward to the midnight yell. Looking forward to uh, just, just seeing how the, the game goes and how the crowd goes with it. I'm not looking forward to because our hotel is in Houston. Um, I'm not looking forward to that drive at 5.30, 6 in the morning so we can find a good parking spot. I'll actually have to hit you up after this to get your recommendations on that. But uh, yeah, looking forward to the atmosphere, looking forward to a game. Hopefully I'm wrong and Florida wins, but I, I am thinking a shootout is coming. I'm, I'm thinking there are going to be a lot of points scored uh, down in Aggie land. Well, Mike, uh, thank you again. As always, we love, uh, we love having you. We love having a reason to bring you on. Maybe if, if uh, Florida and Texas A&M meet up in a, in a big basketball game or college world series or something like that, we'll have you back and, as, as as long as your 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 knowledge is still up to date and you still keep tabs on the guys you used to cover, you're obviously an excellent guy to break down what's going on in Aggie Land. So we appreciate it. Best of luck to you in Cleveland. We'll definitely be keeping tabs on your success there. And hopefully I'll see you soon, man. It's been a been a really long time. Yeah. I will see you guys soon. Chris, Dustin, appreciate it. Neil, thanks as always, man. And uh we'll talk next week about how your experience at Kyle Field was for sure. Yes, sir. And uh just so everyone can uh can know where exactly can they find you? It is at Mike Lucas TV. It's simple now. No more call letters, no more nothing. Just simple at Mike Lucas TV. All right. And the name of your of your show is what now? And it's the Ultimate Cleveland Sports Show. If you have any interest in Cleveland sports, it's for you. If you don't, it is absolutely not for you. We talk <laughs> Cleveland sports. And if you don't like Cleveland sports, yeah, we, we got nothing for you right now. So it's on YouTube. Uh, Jay Crawford, the old first take host, is the host. And we it's like a man cave situation, a couple dudes some girls and uh, some fun topics, but it's YouTube. So there's no rules. It's a lot of fun. I love it. I love it. Well, hopefully our listeners down in Florida and, and uh, in Atlanta's areas, whenever they have to play Cleveland in a big sports event or something, they can, they can listen. Yeah, their the next game's against zone. Miami. So you there never you know. Go. It actually could uh, be a nice little crossover, but. Perfect. Perfect. Appreciate well, it guys. Yep. Thank you so much, Mike. Uh, take care and we'll talk soon. Have a good one. Thank you again, Mike. Thank you again.